So uh, we'll set our motivation before we begin. Just um, within the half hour, really, I've been away from the computer all afternoon and before preparing to come upstairs and, and just a quick look. Somebody's travel plans had changed. Surgery that was scheduled for tomorrow has been postponed. A monk on the way to a wonderful event of sharing the Dharma um, died on the way. Guest of honor of this um, really quite enormous Dharma event won't make it there. This one-hour teaching maybe became two. And if I extend my mind out throughout just the planet alone, thinking of how the surge of causes and conditions and ripening karma changes moment by moment by moment and the surprises people are met with like moment by moment bombs are falling somewhere that nobody expected somebody received a gift they never expected somebody lost a bunch of money somebody got a bunch of money somebody lost a home somebody got a home if we just imagine for a moment the zillions and zillions and zillions of living beings right now kind of grasping at what they think is going to happen next. And something else is going to ripen. It's just the situation that we live in, this constant, constant change. And absolutely the only thing we know for certain as the continuity of this consciousness will separate from the molecules that we recognize as this life's body. That's all we know for certain. And we have no idea when that's going to happen either. None. And so just in the sea of change, in the you know, infinite, infinite, infinite ocean of possibility that we live and breathe in and hardly ever notice, It's really precious to notice what's right in front of us and where we are right this minute. To pay very close attention to what's important in the opportunity that we have. To see how clinging to the meaningless affairs of this life, our short-term goals, the afflictions that arise in response to some immediate thing, you know, in that big picture of constant change really has no importance whatsoever. And the opportunity to actually get ourselves out of this wheel of cyclic existence, the opportunity to help everybody else get out too, I mean, that is so rare and exists for us really right now in this moment. 
And so as we do this teaching tonight, we bring our minds to that. Really set that our um, time together will be used most productively to transform our minds, to delve a little deeper into the Buddha's teachings about how we can realize our full potential. Cease the causes that keep us really kind of helpless against the karma and the afflictions that have caused it that continually ripen. And set our minds on the path that will relieve us and set a broad motivation so that we'll relieve all others to be able to attain a lasting happiness that doesn't change. And that promises eons of productive work as we work to free all beings from the cycle of existence. So let's set our mind to that. Our new mindfulness practice um, is really so beneficial, I find. So that listening, so adopting from the uh, community in uh, the Deer Park Monastery in Escondido, California, which is uh, under the spiritual guidance of Venerable Thich Nhat Hanh, who's very famous for his mindfulness practices, um, they have a they have bells throughout the day, and so whenever a bell is rung, um, intentionally or just because the clock goes off. Uh, everyone stops and goes through their breath. So we've been practicing that here too. And what I'm finding is um, how long a bell actually sounds is longer than I noticed before. <laughs> and really how beneficial it is to take the time to ride that sound and also just hear that change. It's so interesting. It's very, It's a very good reminder of how and permanent everything is. So, last week, Venerable Sompton gave a really wonderful survey of um, one method for developing bodhicitta, the uh, seven-point cause and effect instruction for developing bodhicitta. And tonight's topic is um, the other one, uh, equalizing, exchanging self and others. And... Um, there's so much material <laughs> and so much that I was really having a hard time, like even up to an hour ago, throwing things out that I knew weren't going to fit. And so like minutes before, we just learned that Venerable Children probably will not return from um, India when she thinks she will. So Venerable Tarpa said, do you want to go longer? <laughs> so we'll see. Uh, I, uh, some of the things I threw out, I didn't bring up, but... Um, yeah, we may go longer. It's big. It's big, this topic. Um, and it's so um, juicy. It's a lifetime topic. Um, I want to go back to kind of set the framework. And so um, the practice of equalizing, exchanging self and others uh, comes to us uh, via Chakimuni Buddha from Manjushri. 
and was chiefly described by Shantideva in Guide to a Bodhisattva's Way of Life. That's where most of the stuff is drawn from. And he says early in in the book, if you turn the 84,000 teachings of the Buddha, their essence is bodhicitta. So, like, if you churn rich milk, the very essence of that milk turns into butter. Not the stuff we get wrapped in wax. I mean, that's butter too, but if you've ever had really fresh butter from really organic home cows, it's something special. And so, with that very idea, um, if we examine and turn the whole collection of the Buddha's teachings, then the very essence that comes out of that is this bodhicitta. The practices that lead to this bodhicitta mind. So, when His Holiness um, taught in New York a few years ago, he was teaching on... um, a Nagarjuna text on developing bodhicitta and also on um, Shantideva's text. And he talked about bodhicitta in a way that really struck me. He went. He started the whole teaching by, by just defining it, saying that bodhicitta means literally the mind of awakening. And uh, that bodhi means to transform or to purify. The term in Tibetan is Jiangchu, and these two syllables say the same thing. So Jiang is like to cleanse, and Chu is to embody or to realize. To embody or to realize. So it says the basis for attaining enlightenment is the essentially pure nature of our mind, the natural purity of it, which is just present in all of us. So the purification of removing the afflictions or the things that obscure that purity and then embodying it, realizing it, that's the mind of bodhicitta. So the afflictions are adventitious. They're not the um, essential nature of the mind. Um, And so when the afflictions are cleansed, so are we. <laughs> when the afflictions are cleansed, where enlightenment is the nature of our mind itself, he says. And so the bodhicitta has two aspirations which need to be cultivated separately. One of them is um, the altruistic intention to, um, or aspiration to benefit others, to bring about their well-being. And then based on that wish that just like grows and grows and grows and grows and grows, then we recognize that the only way to really benefit those beings is to become a Buddha. So that's the second aspiration of this two-pronged idea. Geshe Pelge, when he was here, he really challenged us. He says, how much do you want to become a Buddha because you want to become a Buddha? (laughs) And how much do you want to become a Buddha because you want to help sentient beings? I mean, I don't know about you, but if I have to answer that question honestly, I like the idea of being a Buddha. I'm not. I'm a little bit vague about it. I'm afraid, 
But that's a great idea. But the idea of benefiting sentient beings, I mean, I like it as an idea too. But like when I'm taking refuge, or if I'm doing the bodhicitta prayer, is it sentient beings that leap to my mind, or is it like the image of a Buddha that leaps to my mind? Sentient beings are a lot harder to call up. And if I think about infinite sentient beings, and that is a very deliberate mental action. <laughs> it's not just in my head. I don't lay eyes on every person I see or every stink bug or every cat that walks across the floor and think, ah, I want that person to be liberated from this body and suffering. Mostly it doesn't cross my mind at all in in that way. I can do it conceptually, you know, I can do it on the cushion, I can practice some exercises that, um, like practicing our um, uh, gatas to develop bodhicitta, if I'm applying those, then I can bring those plans to mind, but it still is not encompassing all beings. I mean, it is, it's not naturally where we are. And yet, cultivating that mind is not only essential, if we have this aspiration for liberation, for enlightenment. But it's also possible. And so, um, equalizing, exchanging self and others is um, one of the the practices that um, helps us, well, causes us, to be able to have that mind um, that is so desirous of wanting, of to benefit others. So deeply understanding of what it is that benefit means. So clear what benefiting means. And so focused on the reasons why we should and could that um, we develop this natural bodhicitta that arises as a result of doing the practices. So it's very potent, very powerful. We need to have, especially this part about developing, um, benefiting others, we need to have the sense of connection that holds others dear. Not just a handful of others. Every other. (laughs) Every single other. And in the uh, Equalizing, Exchanging Self and Others practice, we actually learn that other is kind of a made-up idea. So that's one of the things that that this practice takes us to. We also need to have a deep understanding of the meaning of suffering. And Venerable Jigmeis talked about this a few weeks ago, but especially the uh, pervasive, compounded suffering, the conditioning of all living beings, no matter what realm we're in. What is that dukkha? What is that unsatisfactoriness? What is the thing that, that keeps us on the wheel of never being able to escape it? We have to have that profoundly too. And in, in with those two things, with that holding others dear, we love arises, a wish for their happiness. When understanding the suffering really deeply, um, then compassion also arises and wishes, wishes others to be free from it. So... Um, His Holiness assures us that by means of sustained reflection and getting really familiar with these ideas through rehearsal, he says, and practice. 
through rehearsal and practice, we can develop our innate ability, really our innate empathy can be grown. So that's, you know, what is behind the equalizing, exchanging self for others. So equalizing, exchanging self and others also sits within this big, big, big picture of the thought training practices. The way it's laid out in the Lamrim, you don't really get that. It's not so clear, I think, because you, you, it follows the equalizing, exchanging self. I mean, it follows the seven-point cause and effect instruction in the text, and then you get equalizing, exchanging self and others as an alternative or a different way, and then you go right into the um, six far-reaching practices for um, how to develop, you know, once you have your bodhicitta, how to develop the qualities of the Buddha. Um, but from the history that Venerable Samkin gave last week and also in the way this thing is practiced, it's quite clear that... So to just to review, the teaching came from Shakyamuni Buddha, Manjushri, as I said, described by Shantideva. And then, you know, I, there's, I haven't read yet what happened in India with it, but Saralingpa was known to be a person who had really developed these bodhicitta practices just incredibly. And he was on um, the island of Sumatra, in what's now Indonesia. And Atisha went looking for him. And there's the story of how um, um, how much hardship he went through to sail the sea, to get there, to find the teacher, and then spent 12 years really training in these practices. Came back, and then there's the beautiful story of how he was invited to Tibet to teach. So even meditating on the story of Atisha and in a way the thin thread of how this practice even came down to us is amazing. Amazing. But it did. He lived, he was able to come back, he was able to continue to teach, he was invited to to teach in Tibet, he made it the terrible journey into Tibet. and as he began to teach, as Venerable Sampton mentioned last week, he publicly taught the um, seven-point cause and effect instruction, but did not publicly teach equalizing, exchanging self and others, or any of the thought training practices. This was people's minds were just not ready for this. It's too challenging to our understanding of how things work, really, to our ego. But he did teach it to Dram Topa, his heart disciple. And Dramtopa um, also did not teach it publicly, only to two disciples, Geshe Patawa, Patawa, however you would say that, and Langri Tangpa, done in secret. So Langri Tangpa is the author of the Eight Verses of Thought Transformation. So that's really the first thought training text that we have. It's those eight verses that are in our Bodhisattva, uh, our uh, Chanmezi practice that we recite here every five days. Um, and it was on the basis of hearing just two lines of this that um, Geshe Chakawa wanted to know more, went to, f- to find the teachings, and he found that Langri Tangpa had already died. But um, the other disciple who had received the teachings ended up giving them to him. And he recognized, again, how frail that line was of this very precious thought training and um, equalizing, exchanging self and others teaching. And so he began, he wrote the seven point cousin of, uh, seven point mind training, which uh, Zopa's been sharing with us. 
um, to begin to make that public. So, uh, why was it so challenging? Well, it takes, I mean, it really confronts the self-centered God directly, squarely, smashes it in the face, really. And um, that's not an easy thing to do. Not an easy thing to do. The main points of this practice, equalizing, exchanging self and others, are this. First is equalizing self and others. So we train ourselves to look beyond the superficial differences that we have and recognize that we are all the same. And we'll go into what that means. But principally, we're all the same in wanting happiness, wanting to be free from suffering. We're all the same in uh, not being happy. (laughs) We're also all the same in having the potential to be able to have that happiness. The next step is to look at the disadvantages of self-centeredness. That mind that um, quite naturally sees um, our happiness as the most important thing going. We might like people, might want to help people, but when it comes right down to it, whose happiness is the most important? Mine. As far as I'm concerned. <laughs> right, but you think it's yours, and now we're going to get into it and fight about it, right? That's the problem <laughs> right there. <laughs> so then we look at the um, advantages of cherishing others, then the practice of exchanging self <coughs> and others, and we, then we practice, once all that is set in the mind, then we practice cultivating love and compassion with the taking and giving, with the Tonglin practice, and out of that arises the altruistic intention. So those are the steps. Venerable Children said, they say that the advantages of equalizing exchange and self are others, is that if you do this, you don't need health insurance, you don't need divinations, you don't need pujas when you're sick, because you have a capacity to transform everything into the practice. Which is what the whole thought training thing is about, right? So the process of equalizing, exchanging self or others and all the Lojong or the thought training teachings isn't about stopping external problems, but it's about completely changing the mind that dislikes problems. Completely changing the mind that sees difficulties and transforming that into a mind that rejoices happily in whatever comes and uses that as the fuel to fulfill our aspiration to become a Buddha to benefit sentient beings. So they say that this practice is for the higher um, capability. Students of sharp faculties um, are the ones who practice equalizing, exchanging self and others, whereas the seven-point cause and effect instruction is for students of lesser capability. And I was very relieved to discover that Geshe Tashi Sering has a nice take on this. Um, he says that this really stems from the different approaches to the subject matter, this higher capability or lower capability. It doesn't have anything to do with the intellect of the student. So, and, and it's his belief. He says, basically, if you have more of a um, kind of emotional... Tone, the seven-point cause and effect instruction really works. That it's um, because it so much goes directly to our heart about thinking about the kindness of our parents, 
the kindness of our mother. You know, really meditating on something that is immediately experientially true and having this warm feeling arise and then on that, that basis then extending that to others. Um, that's very personal and warm and great bodhicitta can arise from that. Equalizing, exchanging self and others is more reasoned. It is equally emotional if we, if we allow that to happen, but it is a much more reasoned approach. And so, and, and through that, we also have to really delve into the nature of reality itself. You have to have an understanding of emptiness to really practice equalizing, exchanging self and others. So because of that, he says, that's why it's called the practice for higher um, capacity or sharper faculty, because it requires this, this understanding, if not realization, but an understanding of emptiness in order to really practice it, whereas then full cause and effect does not. So you can, um, of course, develop bodhicitta with that, but you may not have a comp- with the sevenfold cause and effect. But you may not have a complete understanding of emptiness. It has to come at it a different way. Whereas this practice, equalizing, exchanging self and others, combines those two a little bit. So it's cool. Also, just to point out how difficult it is, this practice. Riva Rinpoche says that before you even do this practice, if we're going to really um, do it step by step, that we first start with the first five steps of the seven-point cause and effect method. So that we first spend some time on equanimity, evening out our um, emotional relationship to the people we identify as friends, enemies, and strangers. We spend some, a lot of time recognizing that since we've taken multiple rebirths, we have infinite numbers of mothers. We spend a lot of time cultivating the kindness of the mother, you know, recognizing the kindness of the mother, wishing to repay it. And then when warm-hearted love arises in a wish to repay it, that's when we're ready to start doing the um, practices for equalizing, exchanging self and others. So the equalizing part actually is also a, um, is also an equanimity, but it's got a different feel. Whereas the um, equanimity of uh, the seven-point cause and effect is more about evening out our relationships with everybody out there, making that all smooth and even, the equalizing that we're doing here is um, equalizing our relationship between everybody out there and this one right you get what I mean so it's still it's always even though in the sevenfold called an effect we're meditating on um, how the um, label enemy friend stranger are all interchangeable they don't inherently exist and we're working to develop a heart warming love for all those beings but they're still out there <laughs> they're still all other and I'm still here where the equalizing we're trying to do here is to see that self and other are completely equal. Completely. And that is a leap. Shanti Deva says, first of all, I should make an effort to meditate on the equality between self and others. I should protect all beings as I do myself because we are all equal in wanting pleasure and not 
wanting pain. And as many times as I have, you know, meditated on everybody wants happy, wants to be happy, just like me. Everybody wants to be free from suffering, just like me. When it comes down to hearing it, just like this, we are all equal in wanting pleasure and not wanting pain. And there's a part of my mind that says, so what? <laughs> so what? Well, huh? What do you do with that? Well, it's interesting. Geshe Tashi Sering, I, he, I really recommend this book. He, he has some interesting things to say about it. And, and he says that um, the reason we sort of go with, with so what is that we own, only we experience our suffering. We don't experience other people's suffering. But if we keep you know, meditating on how it is that we're alike, if we go deeper and deeper and deeper with that, then we can actually have the experience, and that's where the Tonglin practice takes us, of seeing that um, our experience of suffering changes when we include everybody. Right? I'll leap to that story. It's not till many pages later, but it's an int- because we're here. But... It, I mean, His Holiness tells the story. He's told it, I've, I've heard him give it a couple of times, where he talks about how, I think he was in Delhi, but anyway, his gallbladder or something, he had this you know, terrible, terrible pain and attack. That was, you know, his body was really hurting. Gallbladder? Yeah? Colon. Colon. Anyway, anyway, it was some, something in his gut. Um, and he was in the car going to the hospital with this huge pain. And yet, with looking out the window... He saw children, ragged, looking like they had no home. He saw an old man who was really ill, lying on the side of the road with no one to care for him. And by practicing this compassion, his heart just went out to these beings and their suffering, and his own pain, he says, subsided. He was doing exactly this. (laughs) Equalizing, exchanging himself taking the pain of others, seeing that everybody's, everybody has pain. And in that way, his own experience of his own pain was different. So that's where we go with it. But, but we have to convince ourselves, actually, we have to convince ourselves that all of these points are true. That's one of the main points that I've been getting from everybody, is this must be experiential. We can do a head thing on these points for eons. But that's not going to help us. We have to, to meditate on them, reflect on them, test them in daily life to the point that we really understand that all beings, these are the points, all beings equally wish to avoid suffering. All living beings equally wish to have happiness and all living beings equally lack that happiness. So that this experience of my own suffering that I think is so uniquely mine, I have to come to realize that it is not uniquely mine. Suffering is just suffering. And then the wish to eliminate it, no matter whose it is, is what arises. So even that, all living beings equally wish to avoid suffering. We can't begin really to deeply probe that 
until we have deeply probed what dukkha is. And we know this, you know, we know that, that, that bodhi, the practices of bodhicitta sit on renunciation, and we know that renunciation is based on renouncing suffering. It's based on deeply understanding what our dukkha is. But Geshe Tashi Sering says, until we see the, dip, the depth of the ignorance and delusion in our own mind streams, we will not be able to understand the depth of suffering of others. It's got to be true. And until we have eliminated these in our mind, we won't have the skill to help others do it. But before we can eliminate it, we have to want to eliminate it. And before we can want to eliminate it, we have to spend our time really thinking about what our situation really is here. So understanding the Four Noble Truths, especially the, you know, the truth of um, Dukkha, and the causes of dukkha, over and over and over and over and over, is essential to be able to generate the mind that sees that we're equal with all other beings. The same thing is true with our desire for happiness. You know, we have to test when they say this. You know, all beings are equal in wanting happiness. Is that true for me? Is it true that it is the dominant motivation of every single thing I do? I mean, I know, and I, for years, when I first heard these teachings, I, I did it, I rejected that idea. I thought, surely, surely, I have more noble aspirations than just wanting to be happy. Some higher, I don't know. It's part of my arrogance, right? There's some higher purpose. There is not. (laughs) I have come to realize that there is not. But um, wanting to be happy every single moment is pretty much what's running me. Um, But, you know, I have to think about it. I have to pay attention. Because throughout the day, I check out on that that's really my underlying motive. I think I have other things going on. And I, unless I make myself think about it, I don't think you have that motive either. (laughs) So I can use it as an antidote. You know, when somebody is struggling or I'm struggling with somebody, I can pull it out, oh, this person is trying to be happy. And and it actually brings some relief to my mind through practice, through practice. But as a way of, like, living, do I see that I'm trying to be happy in every moment? If I did, I would actually... um, be able to recognize how futile <laughs> the attempts were. Ah! And I would be hugely more compassionate to what everybody else is doing, trying to be happy too. But, so this is the first um, meditation, really, in our, our developing, our um, equalizing. And in I didn't really rely on it, but Jeffrey Hopkins has a beautiful book on how to develop compassion. Um, It's under two different titles, and I can't now remember either title because it's been renamed. Cultivating Compassion, is that it? Yeah, they renamed it something. I don't know, but it's anyway, it's a book on compassion by Jeffrey Hopkins. And it's a handbook 
It is a meditation handbook. And he says, just from the beginning, just start going through your day saying, just like me, this person wants to be happy and free from suffering. And to take people one at a time, individually, bring them to mind, really look at their faces. And this is so true, you know, our whole longing is on all of our faces. We just look. Bring that person's face to mind and say they just like me. It's an important piece. You have to say they're just like me. Otherwise, we can really get into separating and the arrogance of, oh, they're trying to be happy. No, just like me. (laughs) This person is wanting to be happy. And just like me, they're wanting to be free from any suffering. And to do that again, 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 again with people. And recognize that similarity. Make that a part of our um, on the cushion and off the cushion practice. It's what His Holiness said about our rehearsal. You know, working it over in our minds. And we also need to understand that the happiness we do have is relative happiness. I mean, it's not that we don't have some happiness. But really thinking about it in terms of this language, I thought it was very interesting. If it's called relative happiness, it's relative in relationship to the amount of suffering, right? Uh, lying on the beach, taking our vacation, it may seem like happiness, but it's only happiness in relation to getting away from the misery of our ordinary daily life. And we know in this, as we speak about the suffering, um, yeah, the dukkha of change, if we keep lying on the beach, we will become miserable. But to think it as relative happiness is actually works better for my mind. I like that idea. It's always in relation to pain. I'm happy in relation to the fact, yes, that, you know, I'm, I'm glad I had breakfast. I'm happy in relation to the fact that I'm no longer hungry. But, is there a bigger happiness? Well, we don't know. That's part of the problem. We don't know. But we have to um, allow ourselves, again, the imagination and the possibility. Of what, what, what would happiness be if I didn't have this affliction, for example? How would that feel in my mind? Try those kinds of things on. And that's how we can begin to get a sense that there's actually something different. But um, but the main point here is that we have to see and explore and analyze again, 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 and again that we and everybody equally, exactly the same, equally, equally, equally want to be free of the dukkha want to have happiness and equally are not happy. <laughs> equally have no have nothing better than a little relative fleeting moment of pleasure. And in that way, you know, if we if we even let ourselves emotionally settle into that then 
you know, how can we pick fights with each other? Really? How can we harm each other? How can we want to do anything but help each other? <sighs> then there's also the truth, as again, as I think this is Geshe Tashi Sarai, if we peel away the layers of delusions that cloud our mind, what remains is the pure, unfettered mind of love and understanding of Buddha nature. So for every living being underneath all of our other longings, that's what's there. The purity of our mind. Same thing. Same thing. Same thing. Therefore, Shantideva concludes, hence I should dispel the misery of others because it is suffering just like my own and I should benefit others because they are sentient beings just like mine. So, well, I wasn't going to do the nine points, but now that I have a little, a little space, um, there is this wonderful meditation, this nine-point meditation, which um, I've also been trying to track down the source. Um, Venerable Children has it in her um, Ram meditations, um, guided meditations on the stage of the path. Um, and Geshe Techchuk has it in his book, Transforming Adversity into Joy and Courage. He describes this very uh, thoroughly. So I was actually surprised whenever I, w- I went looking for this at one time to find that you don't, it, this is not actually classically presented as a part of this Utilizing Exchanging Self and Others. It's not in um, J. Rinpoche's Lamrim Chemmo. Um, it's not in... Uh, Pabanka Rinpoche doesn't mention it, although I think he may be the conduit for it. So, um, Venerable Children said that she heard it from Serkong Rinpoche. And then I saw a footnote in an unpublished manuscript where His Holiness cited that he had learned it from Trijang Rinpoche, which is one of his teachers. And Trijang Rinpoche was a, um, one of the heart disciples of Pabanka Rinpoche, so that may be where it comes from. But it's a meditation that more relies on the... Um, Lamrim prayer and the Guru Puja. But it really gives the different levels of how we work with equalizing. So there's three sets of um, points. And it starts with um, seeing sentient beings in terms of, like from their point of view, like looking at them. So it just takes this point, all beings want to be happy and to avoid some, uh, suffering as intensely as we do. It's definitely that point. But then it has these two examples. So just imagine that there are ten beggars on the street. All of them you know, different. They have different needs. This guy doesn't have a shirt. <laughs> that woman doesn't have shoes and has four children. Well, that person doesn't have a hand. You can imagine all different forms that these beggars take. But if you look and examine them, that each one of them has needs and remove any obstacles that we might have to be able to help them from your mind, there's absolutely no difference 
in the fact that each person has need. None. They're all the same in having need. So that meditation works, but what if you actually start giving them some identities? Like one of those is your mother. Or one of those is the high school math teacher that you hated and still do. You know, or you know, trying to really put some, some of our old friend and me stranger labels on these people, we see that our we're not equal in seeing them at all. But if we think about they all equally want to have this happiness, it would be totally unfair for us to discriminate against them. So this helps kind of convince our minds that everybody is equal in that way. And then you also imagine then they say ten patients who are all ill and you're like the doctor. They all have different diseases, they're all sick, but they all need to be cared for. <laughs> It would be totally, I mean, if, if, if we were the doctor, or if we saw a doctor who went in there and said, y'all take care of you, I'll take care of you, I'll take care of you, the rest of you get out of here. I mean, what kind of mind would be like that? we hate that. And yet, you know, that's kind of how we are. And we can do the same thing with the, with the patients. You can see all they're you know they're all strangers. That's kind of an easy meditation. But if we start actually putting people we know in those roles, very different feeling. And we see how biased our mind is. So then we um, spend time thinking about this equality of wanting to be happy and free from suffering, and making the um, commitment that we want to eliminate suffering for everybody equally. Knowing that, practically speaking, we can't do that. No, that's not the message of this meditation, is that we should then all you know, fill our minds with fill our pockets with quarters and go out and give a quarter to every single living being or whatever. That's not the, the point. But in our mind, we can hold people more evenly. That's that one. So then the second set um, is looking at, and this really helps develop the love, is looking at how much we've benefited from sentient beings. So this is where the um, meditation that we talk about so much here on the kindness of others comes in. You know, we think that um, beings have helped us so much. And we really meditate on all of their kindness, all different kinds of beings. So we think about the kindness of our families, the kindness of our friends, the support we get throughout our lives from the people who are close to us. Um, Really being aware, I mean, the kindness of the mother comes into this too, really being aware that we're totally alive due to the kindness of people who cared for us from the beginning. So we think about all those people. We think about all our teachers and how... um, Literally, there's nothing that we can do that we innately do. <laughs> Even if we have a talent for something, somewhere, somehow, we got some guidance on how to do it, how to act. And that's everything from you know how to sit up and have manners at our table 
to any professional skills we have, to any language skills we have, including our, our native tongue. Um, everything that we know how to do, we learn from somebody. So we have teachers of all different kinds. You know, and of course we especially um, honor our Dharma teachers because they're the ones not just trying to help us make a living, they're the ones trying to get us out of samsara completely. But we reflect again, 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 again on how much kindness we receive from um, from uh, our teachers. And then we reflect on the strangers. And that's the meditation that you can spend the rest of your life on. <laughs> Just looking at any object, anything, any, anything. Your house, our clothes, our food that we had this morning, the food that we had tonight. The numbers of sentient beings involved in creating the environment and the things that we enjoy and use and benefit from is endless. Venerable Rabina talks about um, an image that was very vivid to me about how llamas, she said the old llamas go into a grocery store just bent double with gratitude because they see that the food came, you know, and, and know this deeply, that the food was grown by somebody, that the cans were made, invented by somebody, that somebody worked in the cannery and made that happen, that the label was designed by somebody, that the ink that the label was printed with was made by somebody, that they, were, they, they had this sense of the entire network of um, sentient beings engaged in creating something like a grocery store. She says they're just so, you know, so bent in gratitude. They're, they can hardly stand up. That's the mind we can work with <laughs> in thinking about the kindness of strangers. And not taking anything for granted then. You know, but really seeing that it is due to the activities and actions of sentient beings that we have anything at So then we think about the people who have harmed us. Because we can say, yeah, 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 there's been lots of kindness, but what about, you know, there have been, not everybody is kind. But with that idea of turning the mind, we can see that in fact, we've also learned something from the people who have harmed us. We're stronger, we're more resourceful, we are uh, maybe less naive, I mean, we can, we can come up with a lot of lists, but if we are willing to take our mind there and able to, we can see that even, even the people who have harmed us have given us some benefit. And, furthermore, the kindness we've received in general and often from that very person far outweighs the harm. far outweighs the harm. And then the third point of this one is that even if you say, if you know, you just have this intractable um, animosity that won't move in regard to people who have harmed us, the, the third point is holding grudges is counterproductive. <laughs> it's like, what do you get from holding this animosity? After we've gone through all of this kindness, all of this understanding of how dependent we are on sentient beings, including dependent on our enlightenment, holding on to this is completely um, counterproductive. And we're all going to die. Knowing that, that we're all sitting in the 
slaughtering pen waiting to be hauled off to have our throat slit altogether. Why in the world would we hold a grudge? So that helps relieve that one. So then the conclusion of this meditation is to let the wish to help others arise in our hearts and let go of our anger. Practice forgiveness. Let go of our wish for revenge and retaliation. And then the third point actually gets us into the um, uh, the third section of points. Gets us into the real juice of... um, how self and other are merely labeled. Um, we'll start on that. Maybe we'll start start with that next week because it's it's good. Um, first of all, the relationship of the friend, disagreeable person, and stranger aren't fixed. Well, we meditated on that last week when we were doing equalizing, exchanging self. And other, I mean, no, seven point cause and effect instruction, right? We see that friend, interview, stranger change constantly. The person that was my best friend when I was seven is, I don't even know where she is anymore. The person that uh, was my enemy ten years ago is actually quite a good friend now. Those things change. Often. They change within a day. We know that. The second point is that um, from the ultimate point of view, like from the Buddha's point of view, um, they use the analogy that if one person is anointing the Buddha on one side and the other person is whacking at them with a little knife on the other side, the Buddha does not see these two people as enemy or friend, but as completely equal. How is that? It's because the Buddha sees um, the ultimate nature of every being. And then finally, they say that self as other is um, purely nominal. And that's the part that's the most interesting to think about and and, and challenging. Um, Geshitashi Sering cites that um, Nagarjuna talks about this relative um, it's relativity in terms of three kinds so that there's here and there far and near self and other so we can we can kind of progress with that so the idea that here right here in this room is here over in Gotami house is there but for somebody standing in Gotami House, that is here, and over here is there. So here and there are completely relative, and so we can see that they're really just labels, just names we give to our immediate vicinity in relationship to the other thing. Same thing with far and near. You know, I mean, at this moment, Katya is near, and Gotami House is far, if that was the relationship, right? But Gotami House is quite near if I'm thinking about Spokane being far. And Spokane is quite near, and Delhi is really far. 
So once again, these labels of far, near, are completely that. They are just labeled in relationship to each other. And so the next leap is self, other. In relationship. I'm me. You're other. But for you, you're you. You're me. I'm other. Right. And there's actually only one of me, and there's a lot of you other. But each of you is a me with all these other others. And so it's also relative, this label. Self. Other. And if we look at it in that way, then it's it kind of loosens it up. What's self? What's other? It's merely labeled in relationship or independence upon each other. And so if we think about that, and that's what we're thinking about for a long time, it takes some thinking. Because, you know, either here, the near, far, I mean, the here and there, okay. Near and far, okay. Self, excuse me. <laughs> I'm sorry, that is not relative. <laughs> the mind just says, uh-uh, not true. So the progression of those three, I think, is helpful to think about. So the next steps, and we'll go through those really quickly, the next steps then are to think about the disadvantages of, self, of self-centeredness. So next week we can talk about what is the self-centered thought, what are the disadvantages of it, and what are the advantages of cherishing others. And once we've got some deep understanding of that, then we get into the um, exchanging self and others, which is not some ghoulish Hollywood thing of taking on your body and persona, um, but exchanging whose happiness is more important. Shifting. (laughs) So that they're even, actually, or even more important, but shifting. And then um, the taking and giving practice, Tonglen, is how we develop love and compassion based on that equality that we've found, and out of that altruism arises. So thank you, Venerable Tarpa, for the um, idea and the generosity of <laughs> making this a two-week thing. Yeah. I have a question for you. Yeah. Alternatively, to reflect, to reflect on how everyone equally wishes for happiness, can we also do this meditation by reflecting that everyone equally feels that they are I? That they are I? Yes. It's, it's the third point. Really, I mean, you can put it into the um, the ultimate meditation. Mm-hmm. Everyone equally thinks they're I. I think that <laughs> that's true. That's true. If they realize into this, they haven't all equally been. Yeah, see what comes up of it. It's not on the list. Although I think it would fall under the ultimate, the, med- the meditation on the ultimate. Um, and and actually, it's 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 showing how each of us have the same suffering. 
because we all have the same ignorance. It's that very same ignorance that misconceives and then grasps at the I and the self-centeredness arises in it. So, yes, it's a part of the suffering. Make sense? Is he saying yes? Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you very much. And we'll dedicate with this on. Yes. Due to this merit, may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious body mind not yet born arise and grow. May the born have no decline, but increase forevermore. In the snowy mountain pure land, you're the source of good and happiness. Powerful Tenzin Gyatso Chenrezi, may you stay until samsara ends. May the deeds of explaining and practicing the Dharma, done by groups supporting the teachings and their upholders, who spread the view of dependent arising and nonviolent actions in the ten directions, and especially at Shravasti Abbey in the West Forest.